My name is Marshall Rosenberg. I'll be sharing with you how a process I call nonviolent communication can be of service to us in managing anger compassionately. And I'd like to begin with a few words about the origin of this process of communication and its purpose. Nonviolent communication evolved out of an intense interest I have in two questions. First, I have been wanting to better understand what happens to human beings that leads some of us to behave violently and exploitively. And secondly, I have been wanting to better understand what kind of education serves us to remain compassionate even when others are behaving violently or exploitively. And I have found in my exploration into these two questions that three factors are very important in understanding why some of us respond violently and some of us compassionately in similar situations. And these three factors are first the language that we have been educated to use, secondly how we have been taught to think, and thirdly how we have been taught to communicate. These three factors I have found play a large role in determining whether we're going to be able to respond compassionately or violently in situations. And I have integrated the type of language, the kinds of thinking, and the forms of communication that strengthen our ability to willingly contribute to our own well-being and the well-being of others into this process that I call nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication focuses attention on whether people's needs are being fulfilled, and if not, what can be done to fulfill these needs. And it shows us how to express ourselves in a way that increases the likelihood that others will willingly contribute to our well-being. And it also shows us how to receive the messages of others in a way that increases the likelihood that we will willingly contribute to their well-being. When it comes to managing anger, nonviolent communication shows us how to use anger as an alarm, as an alarm that tells us that we are thinking in a way that is not likely to get our needs met and is likely to get us to get involved in interactions with others that are not going to be very constructive for anybody. Our training stresses that it is dangerous to think of anger as something to be repressed or as something bad. When we tend to identify anger as a result of something wrong with us, then our tendency is to want to repress it and not deal with anger. And that use of anger to repress it and deny it 
often leads us it to be expressed eventually in ways that can be very dangerous to ourselves and others. Think of how many times you've read in the newspapers about serial killers and how they are described by others who have known them. The rather typical way they're described is, he was always such a nice person. I never heard him raise his voice. He never seemed to be angry at anyone. So, in nonviolent communication, we are interested in using the anger, using the anger in a way that helps us to get at the needs that are not being fulfilled within ourselves, that are at the root of our anger. Many of the groups that I work with in, around the world are very concerned about any belief about anger that it is to be repressed. Many of these groups have seen how anger, when we teach people that it is bad, can be used to oppress people by getting them to distolerate whatever is happening to them. So what we want to do in using nonviolent communication to manage anger is to go more deeply into it, to see what is going on within ourselves when we are angry, and to be able to get at the need, which is the root of anger, and fulfill that need. To do this involves several steps, and I will go over these steps by using an example of a young man in a prison in Sweden that I was working with in a training session that I was doing for prisoners, showing them how nonviolent communication can be used to manage our anger. The first step in handling our anger using nonviolent communication is to be conscious that the stimulus of our anger is not the cause of our anger. That is to say that it isn't simply what people do that makes us angry, but it's something within us in response to that that is really the cause of the anger. This requires our then to be able to separate the stimulus from the cause. In the situation with the prisoner in Sweden, the dairy day that we were focusing on anger, it turned out that he had a lot of anger in relationship to the prison authorities. So he was very glad to have us be able to deal with anger on that day. And I asked him what it was that the prison authorities had done that was the stimulus for his anger. And he answered, I made a request to them three weeks ago and they still haven't responded. Well, he had answered the question in a way that I wanted him to. He had simply told me what they had done. He hadn't mixed in any evaluation. And that is the first step in managing anger in a nonviolent way, to simply be clear what the stimulus is, but not to in any way mix that up with some judgments or evaluation. The second step involves our being conscious that the stimulus is never the cause of our anger. 
That is, it isn't simply what people do that makes us angry, but it's our evaluation of what has been done that is the cause of our anger, and a particular kind of evaluation. Nonviolent communication is built on the premise that anger is the result of life-alienated ways of evaluating what is happening to us. Life-alienated in the sense that it isn't directly connected to what we are needing or what the people around us are needing, but instead it is based on a way of thinking that implies wrongness or badness to others for what they have done. There are several ways that we can evaluate any stimulus that occurs in our lives. In this case of the, not of the prison officials not responding for three weeks to his request, he could have looked at the situation and taken it personally as a rejection. Had he done that, he would not have been angry. He might have felt hurt. He might have felt discouraged, but he wouldn't have felt angry. A second possibility, he could have looked within himself and seen what his needs are. And we're going to show later that this is a way of thinking that is most likely to get our needs met when we are more directly focused on them. Had he been directly focused on his needs, as we will see later, he would not have been angry. He might have felt, which is, it turned out he was, when we got him in touch with his needs, he was scared. Or another possibility, we could look at things in terms of what needs the other party was experiencing that led them to behave as they did. This kind of understanding with the needs of others does not leave us feeling angry. In fact, when we are really directly connected with the needs of others, at that point at which we are understanding them, we're really not in touch with any feelings within ourselves, because our full attention is on the other person. The other way that we can look at things, which is we will find always at the base of anger, is to think in terms of the wrongness of other people for behaving as they did. So in nonviolent communication, we are recommended to tell ourselves when angry, I'm feeling angry because I am telling myself, and then to look for what kind of life-alienated thinking is going on within our head that is creating our anger. In the case of the prisoner, when he told me that he was angry and that the stimulus for his anger was that the prison officials hadn't responded for three weeks to his request, I asked him to look inside and tell me what the cause of his anger was. And he seemed confused and he said to me, I just told you the cause of my anger. I made a request three weeks ago and the prison officials still haven't responded to it. I told him, now what you told me was the stimulus for your anger. In our previous sessions, I've tried to clarify for you that it's never simply the stimulus that creates our anger. 
that the cause is how we look at things. So I'd like you to tell me how you are interpreting their behavior, how you are looking at it that is causing you to be angry. He was very confused at this point. He was like many of us. He's not been trained to be conscious of what is going on within himself when he was angry. So I had to give him a little help to get an idea of what I meant about how to just stop and listen to the kind of thoughts that might be going on inside of us that are always at the core of anger. After a few moments, he said to me, Okay, I see what you mean. I'm angry because I'm telling myself it isn't fair. That isn't a decent way to treat human beings. They're acting as though, you know, they're important and I'm nothing. And he had several other such judgments that were floating rapidly in his head. Notice he had said initially that it was simply their behavior that was making him angry. But it was all of these thoughts that he had within himself that was making him angry. Any one of which could have created anger. But to have a whole series of such judgments, they're not fair, they're not treating me right, all such judgments are the cause of anger. Once we had identified this, he said to me, well, what's wrong with thinking that way? And I said to him, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with thinking that way. I'm just wanting you to be conscious that it's thinking that way which is the cause of your anger. And we don't want to mix up what people do with the cause of anger. Now, this is very hard for many of us to keep straight to not mix up the stimulus of our anger for the cause of our anger. And the reason that that's not easy for us to stay clear about is that we may have been educated by people who used guilt as a primary form of trying to motivate us. And when you want to use guilt as a way of ma manipulating people, you need to confuse them into thinking that the stimulus is the cause of the feeling in the sense that if you want to use guilt with somebody you need to communicate in a way that indicates that your pain is being caused simply by what they do in other words their behavior is not simply the stimulus of your feelings it's the cause of your feelings so if you are a guilt inducing parent you might say to a child it really hurts me when you don't clean up your room. Or if you are a guilt-inducing partner in an intimate relationship, you might say to your partner, it makes me angry when you go out every night of the week. Notice in both of those examples, the speaker is implying that the stimulus is the cause of the feelings. You make me feel. That makes me feel. I'm feeling because you. But if we are to manage anger in a way in harmony with the principles of nonviolent communication, it's important for us to be conscious. I feel because I am telling myself thoughts about the other person or the other person's actions that imply wrongness on their part. And such thoughts take the form of either judgments such as I think the person is selfish, I think the person is rude or lazy, 
or manipulating people and shouldn't do that. It's taking either that form of direct judgment of others or indirect judgments expressed through such things as I'm judging this person as thinking only they have anything worth saying, where it's implicit that that isn't right. So the first step in expressing our anger, managing it in harmony with nonviolent communication is to identify the stimulus for our anger and without confusing it with our evaluation. And the second step is to be conscious that it is our evaluation of people in the form of judgments that imply wrongness that is the cause of our anger. Now the third step involves looking for the need that is the root of our anger. This is built on the assumption that we get angry because our needs are not getting met. However, we're not in touch with our needs. We go up instead of being directly connected to our needs, we go up to our head and start thinking of what's wrong with other people for not meeting our needs. So the judgments that we make of other people that are the cause of our anger are really alienated expressions of needs. Over the years I have come to see that these kind of judgments of others that make us angry are not only alienated expressions of our needs, but at times they look to me like they are suicidal, tragic expressions of our needs. Because when we go instead of to our heart and get connected to what we are needing and not getting, if instead we direct our attention to judging what is wrong with other people for not meeting our needs, a couple of things are likely to happen. First, our needs are not likely to get met. Because when we are judging other people as wrong in some way, if we say it out loud, these judgments usually create more defensiveness than learning. Or certainly they don't cre create much cooperation. Even if people do things that we would like them to do after we have judged them as wrong or lazy or irresponsible, they will be doing these actions with an energy that we will pay for. Because when we are angry, because we are judging people, and we express these judgments to them, either verbally or through our nonverbal behavior, they pick up that we are judging them as wrong in some way. Even if people then do what it is that we would like them to do, they are likely to be motivated more out of fear of being punished, fear of being judged, out of their guilt or shame, than out of compassion in relation to our needs. And when we are using nonviolent communication, we remain conscious at all times that it's as important why people do what we would like them to do as that they do it. So we are conscious that we only want people to do things willingly and not do things because they think they're going to be punished or blamed or guilted or shamed if they don't. So 
This requires that we have a literacy and a consciousness of our needs, that we be able to get in touch with the needs that are behind the judgments that are making us angry. For it's when we can clearly express the needs to others that others have a much greater likelihood of responding compassionately to whatever it is that we would like. In the case of the prisoner from Sweden, after we had identified the judgments that he was making that were creating his anger, I asked him to look behind the judgments and tell me what needs of his were not getting met that were being expressed through the judgments he was making of the prison officials. This wasn't easy for him to do because when people are trained to think in terms of wrongness of others, they're often blind to what they are needing. They often have very little vocabulary for uh, describing what they are needing. It requires shifting attention away from judging outward to looking inward and seeing what the need is. But with some help, he was finally able to get in touch with his need, and he said, well, my need is to be able to take care of myself when I get out of prison by being able to get work. So the request that I was making to the prison officials was for training to meet that need. If I don't get that training, I'm not going to be able to take care of myself economically when I get out of prison, and I'm going to end up back in here. Then I said to the prisoner, now that you're in touch with your need, how are you feeling? And he said, I'm scared. So when we are directly connected to our needs, we are never angry anymore. The anger hasn't been repressed. The anger has been transformed into need-serving feelings. The basic function of feelings is to serve our needs. The word emotion basically means to move us out, to mobilize us, to mobilize us to meet our needs. So when we have a need for some nourishment, we have a feeling that we label as hunger, and that emotion stimulates us to move, to move about, to get our need for hunger, our, our need for food taken care of we just felt comfortable when we had a need for nourishment, we could starve because we wouldn't be mobilized to get our need met. So this is the natural function of emotions, to stimulate us to get our needs met. But anger is stimulated by a diverse diversion. We are not in touch with the needs that would naturally get us to want to get our needs met, the anger is created, as I have said, by thinking about the wrongness of others. And that now transfers this energy away from seeking to get the need met into an energy designed to blame and punish other people. So when I pointed out to the prisoner the difference between getting in touch with his needs and the feelings that he had then, that he was then aware of fear, and he could see that the anger was because of the thinking about the wrongness of others, 
I asked the prisoner, do you think you're more likely to get your needs met if when you go in to talk to the prison officials, you are connected to your needs and the fear, or whether you are up in your head judging them and angry? And he could see very clearly that he was much more likely to get his needs met if he were to be communicating from a position of connection to his needs rather than separated from his needs and thinking of others in a way that implied wrongness. At the moment he had this insight into what a different world he would be living in when he was in touch with his needs as opposed to judging others, he looked down at the floor and had about as sad a look on his face as I can recall any person ever having had. And I asked him, what's going on? And he said, I can't talk about it right now. Later that day, he helped me understand what was going on in him. He came to me and said, Marshal, I wish you had taught me two years ago about anger what you taught me this morning. I wouldn't have had to have killed my best friend. Tragically, two years before, his best friend had done some things, and he felt great rage in response to what his friend had done. But instead of being conscious of what his needs were behind all of that, he really thought it was his friend that made him angry, and in a tragic interaction, ended up killing the friend. I'm not implying that every time we get angry, we hurt somebody or kill them. But I am suggesting that every time we are angry, we are disconnected from our need, and we are up in our head thinking about the situation in a way that's going to make it very hard for us to get our needs met. A very important step that I have just outlined is this one that requires us to be conscious of the thinking that is creating our anger. And as I said, the prisoner at first was totally oblivious to all of the thoughts that were going on within him that made him angry. And the reason for this is that our thoughts go on very rapidly. And many of our thoughts go so quickly through our head that we are not even aware that they're there. And it really looks to us as though it was the stimulus that was the cause of our anger. I was one time working in a correctional uh, school for delinquents, and I had an experience that really helped me to learn this lesson, that it is never the stimulus that causes the anger, that there's always between the stimulus and the anger some thought process that's going on. On two successive days, I had remarkably similar experiences, but I had quite different feelings on the two days. The experience in both situations involved my being hit in the nose, because on two successive days, I was involved in breaking up a fight between two different students, and in both cases, as I was involved in breaking up the fight, I caught an elbow in the nose. On day one, I was furious. On day two, even though the nose was even sore, of course, than it was on the first day, 
I wasn't angry. Now, what was the reason why I would be angry in response to the stimulus on day one, but not on day two? Now, first of all, in, both situa in, in the first situation, if you had asked me at the moment right after I'd been hit in the nose why I was angry, I would have had trouble finding the thought that was making me angry. I probably would have said, well, I'm obviously angry because he, you know, the child just hit me in the nose. But that wasn't the cause. As I looked at the situation later, it was very clear to me that the child whose elbow hit me in the nose on day one was a child that I was thinking of before this incident in very judgmental terms. I had in my head a judgment of this child as a spoiled brat. So as soon as his elbow hits my nose, I'm angry. It seemed that that was it, that just as soon as the elbow hit my nose, I was angry. But between that stimulus and the anger flashed within me this image of this child being a spoiled brat. Now that all happens very fast. But it was the image of spoiled brat that made me angry, not... Now, on the second day, I carried quite a different image into the situation of that child. That child I saw more as a pathetic creature than a spoiled brat. And so when the elbow caught my nose, I wasn't angry. I certainly felt physical pain, but I wasn't angry because a different image flashed through my mind rather than the judgmental image, spoiled brat, which caused the anger. So these images happen very quickly, and it can easily trick us into thinking that the stimulus is the cause of our anger. So now I have outlined three steps in managing our anger using nonviolent communication, the identification of the stimulus for our anger without confusing it with the evaluation. Second, the identification of the internal image or judgment that is making us angry. And third, the transformation of this judgmental image into the need that it's expressing. In other words, bringing our full attention to the need which is behind the judgment. Now, these three steps are done internally. We're not saying anything out loud. We are simply becoming aware that our anger is not caused by what the other person has done, but by the judgment. And then we are looking for the need behind the judgment. Now, the fourth step involves what we would actually say out loud to the other person after we have made this transformation. The transformation I'm referring to is this transforming the anger into other feelings by getting in touch with the need behind the judgment creating the anger. The fourth step involves now saying to the other person four pieces of information. First, we reveal to them the stimulus, what they have done, in other words, that is in conflict with our needs being fulfilled. Secondly, we express how we are feeling. Now we are no longer angry because the anger has been transformed into other feelings. 
Notice we are not repressing the anger. The anger has been transformed into a feeling such as sad, hurt, scared, frustrated, or the like. And we then follow up our expression of our feelings with the needs of ours that are not being fulfilled. And now we add to those three pieces of information a clear present request of what we want from the other person in relationship to our feelings and unmet needs. So in the situation with the prisoner, the fourth step on his part would be to go to the prison officials and to say something like this. Uh, I made a request three weeks ago. I still haven't heard from you. And I'm feeling scared because I have a need to be able to earn a living when I leave this prison. And I'm afraid that without the training I was requesting, it will be very hard for me to make a living. So I'd like you to tell me what is preventing uh, you from responding to my request. Now, notice that to communicate that on the part of the prisoner required a lot of work on his part. He needed to be conscious of what was going on in him. He needed some help getting connected to the need behind that. In this situation, he had me to help him. But in our training, we show people how to do all of this for themselves. So when we are stimulated by another person in a way that we are starting to get angry, we need to manage that in the following ways. If we are sufficiently trained in getting in touch with the need behind the judgments, we can take a deep breath, and very rapidly go through the process that I led the prisoner through. In other words, as soon as we catch ourselves getting angry, we take a deep breath, stop, look inside, ask ourselves quickly, what am I telling myself that's making myself so angry? Then we quickly get in touch with the need that is behind that judgment. And when we're in touch with the need, we'll feel in our body this shift away from the anger to other kinds of feelings. And then when we're at that point, we can open our mouths and then say to the other person what we're observing, feeling, needing, and add to that the request. Now, all of that can be done when we have practiced this several times. It can be done in a matter of seconds. But until we are sufficiently trained to do that, we can always take a time out to say something to the other person when we're angry. Time out. I need to do some work on myself right now because I'm afraid that anything I say is going to get in the way of both of us getting our needs met. Then we can go off by ourselves and get in touch with the needs behind our judgments that are making us angry and then go back into the situation. Or perhaps we're fortunate enough to have friends around who can help us to get in touch with what's going on within us. Now, if we can handle our anger this way when we're with people, 
take a deep breath and get connected to the anger, to the judgments making us angry and then to the needs behind the judgments, very often it would be to our advantage if we're able to do it before following that fourth step of opening our mouth and expressing the four things, the observations, the feelings, the needs, and the request. It would be to our advantage if we could, before we express ourself, show some empathic understanding of what was going on in the other person to lead them to behave as they did. For example, I was once in a situation where I heard a person make a statement about an ethnic group and my reaction was to get very angry. I took a deep breath. I identified that I was judging this person as a racist. It was that judgment making me angry. I got in touch with the needs behind that. And then I took a deep breath and decided that if I expressed this to this person at this point, I really sensed that I didn't have much chance of his being able to hear me because I could see that he was feeling very upset himself. So what I did was to try to first understand his feelings and needs before expressing the feelings and needs that were behind my anger. And what I said to him was, it sounds like you're frustrated. Uh, you've, not had, you've had some bad experiences with this minority group, and you would really have uh, liked to have been treated with more fairness than you felt you were treated. And he said, that's right. And then he went on to make another very pejorative statement about this minority group. Again, I had to take a deep breath because I caught myself getting angry again. Again, I had to get clear that I was judging him, to get clear the need behind it, all of which just took a few seconds, just giving myself that amount of understanding for what was going on in me. I could continue then to try to understand him. Then when he felt understood, I then said the four things. I said to him, when I hear you make statements like that, I feel very discouraged because I have a strong need for people to be seen as individuals and not lumped into categories. And uh, I'd like you to tell me back what you've just heard me say so I can see if I made my needs clear. And we proceeded to have I a productive conversation in which I got some understanding for him about the pain that I was feeling in relationship to his statement because I had empathized with him before expressing what was going on in me and I what was going on in me I was able to get down to the need without having it obstructed by judgments of him as being a racist. Now, if we are to be able to manage our anger when it comes up in the way that I'm outlining, a key part of it is this ability to both identify the judgment making us angry and to quickly transform it into the need 
that is behind the judgment. We can develop our ability to do this quickly enough to do it in real situations if we can practice identifying judgments and translating them into needs. So an exercise I would recommend to you is to list the kind of judgments that are likely to go on inside of you when you are angry. You might want to think of the most recent times that you have gotten angry and ask yourself and write down what you were telling yourself that was making you angry. When you have made an inventory of the kind of things you tell yourself in different situations that make you angry, you might then go back over this list and ask yourself, what was I needing that was being expressed through that judgment? And the more time we spend making these translations of judgments into needs, that will help us then in being able to follow these procedures for expressing anger more quickly in real-life situations. I would like to conclude this discussion of anger by saying some things about the concept of punishment. The kind of thinking that leads us to be angry is thinking that implies that people deserve to suffer for what they've done. In other words, the moralistic judgments we make of other people that imply wrongness, that imply irresponsibility, inappropriateness, all of these kind of judgments at root imply that people shouldn't have done what they do and they deserve some form of condemnation or punishment for doing it. I believe that we'll see that punishment never can really get our needs met in a constructive way if we can ask ourselves two questions. The first question is, what do we want the other person to do differently than what they're now doing? If we ask only this question, at times punishment works because we may be able to get a child to stop hitting his sister if we punish him for doing it. I say it sometimes works because sometimes the very act of punishing people for what they do creates such antagonism that they continue to do it out of resentment or anger. They continue to do it longer than they would have done had there not been punishment. But if we add a second question to what do we want the other person to do, I'm confident that we'll then see that punishment never works in the sense of getting our needs met for reasons we won't be sorry for later. The second question is, what do we want the other person's reasons to be for doing what we want them to do? When we ask that question, I think we will see that we never want other people to do things because they are afraid of punishment. We don't want people to do things out of obligation or duty 
or out of guilt or shame or to buy love, with some consciousness, I'm confident we would each see that we only want people to do things if they can do it willingly because they clearly see how it's going to enrich life if they do that. Any other reason for doing things is likely to create conditions that make it harder for people in the future to re behave in a compassionate way toward one another. To order other Marshall Rosenberg products or for more information about CNVC, please call 1-800-255-7696. Or you can visit our website at www.cnvc.com.